Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Take a listen. Hello, I'm honored to be here today. My name is Vicki Salome, and I'm going to read to you from my new novel, Waiting for You at Midnight. Waiting for You at Midnight is set in New Orleans. It's about a woman in the first year of her widowhood. This is a woman filled with yearning. She's in a lot of emotional pain. Her name is Arabella Joseph. She's just lost her husband, Logan, and she finds herself alone in a world of people she can't relate to and who can't relate to her. She involves herself in activities that don't do anything to ease her enormous grief. She has a need in the aftermath of Logan's death to share her most intimate thoughts with someone, and she doesn't have anyone with whom to do that. So she begins writing to her dead husband in a spiral notebook. She describes her life to him and what is going on with her. He is her best friend, and so there's nothing she can't tell him. She begins to tell him about the men she meets as she goes from man to man looking for another Logan. She tells him about all the funny and sometimes pathetic situations she gets herself into in her need not to be so alone. This is a story about grief, but it's about more than that. It's about how one woman who has suffered loss, the loss of someone she's been married to for over 20 years and whom she adores, the loss of youth and physical beauty goes raging into the night in search of all the things that are sacred to her beauty and joy and laughter before i read to you let me tell you how arabella and logan met arabella walked into an alcoholics anonymous meeting one night and sat beside logan at a table they went out for the first time on new year's eve And the next morning, they took a walk around the city of New Orleans, telling each other their life stories. In this scene I'm about to read, they have been walking all day long and are now heading back to the ferry landing at Algiers Point. In this scene and in in all the scenes in the book, Arabella is writing to Logan, her dead husband, recalling their life together. It was getting late. We headed back to the ferry. You took my hand. We walked in darkness. We approached the ferry landing. We could see the skyline of New Orleans across the river. High on top of buildings, lighted signs glowed in pale turquoise and sea blue. The river itself was shimmering, moving horizontally to the east, bringing with it a Greek freighter, dark, lugubrious, and harshly quiet. We heard the blast of the boat and ran to get on. My legs were tired, so very tired, but I was not tired. I never wanted to leave this place. On board, we headed to the outside portion of the boat, you leaning against the rail and drawing me near you. You kissed me and kissed me and kept kissing me many times, and finally I looked away and saw a child staring at us and the moving water and diamond-studded sky. You pressed me closer, and when you leaned your head against mine and said in a whisper a weariness in your voice, "'Thank you for this day,' your head against mine, almost like a child's. I could feel how vulnerable you were, how almost sodden with sickness, though I had no idea what I meant by that, except that you reminded me of a wino passed out on the street who tries to get up and has no chance to recover from this ever, his body so sick, his soul so lost. In the Halclean days ahead, I learned how much you needed me and how I craved being needed, craved to love someone like you. And so Arabella and Logan 
date for several years and get married. And then one day in the 21st year of their marriage, they find out that Logan has esophageal cancer. Logan has an operation in which they remove his esophagus and part of his stomach, and he is on a feeding tube for nine months. And then just when Arabella and Logan are beginning to think that all the sickness is behind them and they can finally lead a normal life again, a different form of cancer cell invades his lungs. The scene I'm about to read takes place in the 23rd year of their marriage, shortly after Logan finds out he has lung cancer. It's late at night in their home, and Logan decides to test his strength. He asks Arabella to stay in the bedroom while he walks into the hall. Again, this is Arabella writing to Logan, recalling this time in their life. I walk into your room and help you sit up in bed. I hand you the rolling walker. The cancer is quickly spreading. They took a CT scan yesterday. Dr. Seem said there is junkiness on both sides. I don't know what that means. Inflammation on left side. Steroids, she hopes, will help with the edema. Pushing on the liver is what's causing the nausea. You ought to take Zotrim for that. If breathing gets worse or temperature goes up, call 911 and go to the emergency room. Dr. Zeem is going out of town for the weekend, but you can tell ER to call her. You no longer breathe on your own. A tube inserted in your nose feeds you the oxygen. It's attached to a long cord connected to an oxygen concentrator I have plugged into the hall socket. You can barely walk. Twice you have fallen. The first time you fell, you were trying to get out of bed. I couldn't lift you from the floor and had to go call the paramedics. You were so relieved when you saw them standing over you, and later, gratitude in your eyes, you called me a hero. The second time, you were holding on to the rolling walker when you turned the corner to go into the hall, and the shifting of wheels must have caught you off balance. But you managed to fall safely into the armchair, thank God. And now the third time. I'm going to walk by myself, you tell me. You hand, you ask me to hand you the walker. Defiant and still hopeful, you are determined to triumph over this disease. I will get well, I'm sure you tell yourself, your faith and hope sustaining you, giving you strength and courage. You believe you're still in charge of your destiny and your body will not fail you. You're going to do whatever it takes to recover and live a happy life. Now don't you follow me. I sit in the armchair waiting. You hold onto the walk or steal yourself. I hear the cadence of your movements out into the hall. It is 10 o'clock at night, an ethereal darkness behind the bedroom window. I wait, listen, and then somewhere in the back of the house, I hear what I've most dreaded, a thump, loud. I run to where you are, find you crumpled on the hardwood floor near where dining room meets kitchen. Oh, my God, are you all right? I dropped to my knees. I'm okay. Just help me up. I didn't hurt anything. Don't be scared. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Sweetie, I didn't break anything. Try to get me up. I put my arms around you. Feel your ribcage. A grunt erupts from both of us. It's as if the power of our voices will bring strength to our muscles. And together, through the force of wills, we get you on your feet. And as we stand there holding each other, you breathe into my ear. I'm dying, sweetie. Tomorrow you need to call hospice. And so, not long after, Logan dies. And after that, Arabella goes a little crazy. She is what you would call emotionally unstable. 
She refers to herself in this period of her life as messed up. She thinks messed up, acts messed up. She does the wrong things, latches on to the wrong people. Everybody's grief is different. For Arabella, this is the way she handles grief. She, she develops crushes on men who are wrong for her. She becomes attracted to a Syrian immigrant she meets at an AA meeting. His name is Tig. He has been pursuing her, and in time she becomes infatuated. He tells her he'd like to take her out to lunch on her birthday, and so she's very excited about that. She has that to look forward to. She thinks in time they may come to fall in love and maybe share a life together. And then one day she goes to an AA meeting and sees Tig walk in. Here is the scene. He's wearing white Bermuda shorts. He seems in great spirits. I'm sitting in one of the folding chairs and wave at him as he passes by on his way to his second favorite spot, a chair by the wall near the doorway to the rest of the building. That's where he sits when he's not standing, where he can get a good look at everybody in the room but still be comfortable sitting down. He glances my way as he passes. I wave at him, and he waves back. I feel elated, thrilled to be in his presence, to be breathing the same air he breathes, till I realize he's not waving at me at all. He's waving at the woman sitting next to me, who was waving at him at the same time I was. He seems interested, far too interested in her. Then he sees me and looks caught. He takes his finger and pats his nether lip, as if telling me I'm his kissing partner. And when he sits down and the meeting begins, the woman sitting next to me gets up and heads his way. As she approaches Tig, she lowers her body and coquettishly sits in his lap. She gives him a big, fat, juicy kiss before passing through the doorway, probably on her way to the john or something. Minutes later, another one follows. She, too, heads for the door and sits in his lap and gives him a passionate kiss in the same way the other did. It's as if a spring day suddenly turned dark. It awakens in me a feeling I never even knew I had. I thought I was feeling good. I had a date to look forward to with Tig, after all. But witnessing the spectacle brings me to reality. The truth is I'm no more to him than a squash frog on a dirt road. I've been satisfied to take bits and pieces of him. Weeks would go by before I'd even get a glimpse of him. Surely he has a life between these long stretches of road. Surely he's seeing women, enjoying freedom and camaraderie and fun and intimacy. All these things I long for and find impossible to get. I'm doomed to spend the rest of my life inside this prison I've created. Why are you here? The moderator's voice comes crashing through my thoughts. To listen to you, I mumbled. Is there something you'd like to share? Only that I want to die. A hush falls over the gathering. I think I must be going crazy. Why did I say that? Did I actually really say that? I don't have control over my thoughts anymore. My spirit is so low it leaves a crater on the floor. I guess everybody sees it. I guess they catch the drift of things and see my trembling hands. In the corner of my eye, I see Tig half-rise, jaw stiffening, eyes flashing. He looks as though he's, I've pointed a gun at him or am about to get all hysterical and cause a scene or something. My anguish shocks me even now when I consider the trivial thing that sets it off, two women kissing Tig. I must be out of my mind. I'm appalled by the way I act. All I want is to get out of there and get out as soon as possible. In the succeeding days, I wait for his call. After all, he promised he'd take me out on my birthday. 
But he doesn't call, doesn't take me out, doesn't even lift a finger to pick up the phone to tell me he has better things to do with his time than be with me on my birthday. And then another man comes along. And so this is what is happening to Arabella. For 23 years, she has been married to a man she adores. He's gone now. She's just turned 60. She's alone. She's old. She's no longer beautiful. She misses Logan terribly. She hurts all the time. And the only way she feels she can get rid of the pain is to find someone to take the place of Logan. But her thinking is confused. She meets another man. His man is C. His name is C. He's handicapped, destitute of another race. They don't have much in common, but they have fun together. They feed the ducks at Audubon Park. They sit on the seawall at the lakefront and laugh. He adores her. He's very much in love with her. But they are from different worlds. Arabella's uptown. C is ghetto. And then one day, for the first time, they go out to eat at a restaurant together. We stop at Lebanon's Cafe on Carrollton near Oak. It's crowded. We find a table. He orders a falafel. I order a plate of stuffed grape leaves. When our plates arrive, he arrive, he digs in. He says he hasn't eaten lunch. He hasn't eaten breakfast either. He asks about my charity work. I'm no longer feeding the hungry with Tig on Elysian Fields, but have volunteered to help out at my church soup kitchen for the homeless. I will be going there this Saturday. He asks if he can go with me and eat while I do my work. I say no, he would distract me. Besides, I think, he's not homeless. Why would he want to eat with the homeless? It takes me a while to figure it out. C can't afford to buy food. That's why he hasn't eaten breakfast or lunch. He can't afford three meals. I think about some of the things he told me. He told me once that his son was a great man. He even loaned him $200, and his sponsor loaned him money. In the world that I live in, people don't sponge off people. People can afford a meal. I don't know anyone who is destitute. Then I look over and watch him eat. He's eating at breakneck speed, specks of food splattering all over his face. It's disgusting. Before he reaches for a napkin to wipe his face, I feel nauseous and grossed out. I can see by his expression he is wondering what is wrong with me. Why have I stopped eating? And why have I stopped talking? He starts talking, accelerating the speed of his conversation, trying to distract me and get me to talk again, carry on as we did before, as if everything is normal. It makes him nervous that I am so unresponsive, sitting quietly, looking at my fork so I won't have to look at him. All I can think about is that I don't want to see him anymore. This has gone on way too long. It isn't race, it's class. He's poor, he doesn't work. He has three grown children with children of their own. When they were young, did he support them? Did he provide for them when they were growing up? There's so much I don't know, and I don't want to ask these questions, don't want to pry into his personal business. All I know is I can't introduce him to my family. I can't introduce him to my friends. Even if we made love, I'd probably get a disease or something. He'd mentioned earlier that some of his friends have sex with prostitutes. If they have sex with prostitutes, surely he does too. I only want to go home. I pay the bill and we leave. And as we're walking out the door, I see a man sitting at a sidewalk table staring at us. There is concern on the man's face, interest and curiosity, a visible alertness. 
or maybe it's my imagination. I don't know anything anymore. I don't know if I've gone psychotic. Could that man be a friend of my brother's who will go home and tell on me, tell them I have a black man for a boyfriend, a black man for a potential lover? Home in my mind, even after all these years, will always be Mississippi. Am I paranoid, crazy? Have I completely lost my mind? I can't wait to get to my house, and I definitely will not let him in. If I let him in, he'll only want to make love to me, and I can't make love with someone who lets food splatter all over his face, who doesn't know how to eat properly, who is poor and can't afford food, who'll probably need me to support him for the rest of my life and his, and there's no way I will do that. God, help me find a way out of this, a way out without hurting him. And so Arabella's life is a mess. And then one day, all her bad decisions and all her poor choices collide on one great big catastrophe of an afternoon. On this particular afternoon, she learns that C has died. She learns about it from his best friend, Anthony, who blames her for C's death. She goes to Pat O'Brien's bar. I should remind you, Arabella is a recovering alcoholic. She is an active member of AA. She has not had a drink in more than 20 years. The scene I'm about to read begins when Arabella enters Pat O'Brien's after learning of C's death. I enter the red cobbled corridor and walk through a door to my left. It is midnight inside, or at least it seems that way. Rivlets of light filter through squares of window panes facing St. Peter's. Two couples sit at the bar. They sit five vacant seats away from each other. They are being entertained by a tow-headed bartender. The name tag on his shirt reads Donnie. Decadence is the largest gay festival in the country, Donnie regales the couples, leaning back against dark wood shelves, displaying dense rows of bottled liquor. He laughs, clapping his hands. Decadence, me and my husband go to it every year. A massive TV screen stretches across a wall. The rowdy Donnie is showing off. He ejaculated in the crowd. Donnie's having a good time watching his captivated audience. The walls of the bar are brick. Framed photos are on one wall. They show groups of revelers celebrating. It was hot as Hades. Donnie's voice. He's congenial and vivacious, a hot personality and likable. I can see why they hired him perfect for this bar. He sees me and comes over. I've been looking down at a drink menu. There's a drink called a rainbow. It contains grenadine vodka. I order it. He brings it to me. It comes in a tall, slender glass. The liquid is layered in colors of the rainbow, deep red at the bottom, then yellow, then deep blue and light blue, an orange slice and cherry floating on top. Be sure and stir it, Donnie orders me. He places a bag of popcorn on the bar and then leaves to entertain the tourist couples. My fingers are on the glass. It's icy cold, feeling good to the skin. And then I see Donnie heading my way again. You're not drinking your drink. Why not? His voice is loud, authoritative. I'm taking my time. Why are you taking your time? I stick the tip of my finger into the icy liquid, simulate drinking it. Good, I tell him. I'm playing with Donnie now. I get the feeling he doesn't like it. Donnie can't figure me out. He jerks back slightly. I put the glass to my lips and smile. Donnie looks down at me. 
For all the meeting, but for all the meetings I attend, it would be so easy making this liquid vanish. In my imagination, I feel it sliding down my throat. The euphoria is intoxicating. I can't remember the last time I felt this good. And then there's a moment of reflection when it dawns on me how all the stacked-up bricks of all the years of my sobriety will come crashing down on my head if I do the thing I'm compelled to do. I set the glass down on the bar. Donnie shakes his head. And then my thoughts turn to see. The right thing no longer matters. It was one of the golden slogans. Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Inch by inch is a cinch. Fake it till you make it. Don't quit before the miracle happens. To thine own self be true. I pick up the rainbow, admire its mirrored colors. I drink till there is no more. I drink and the relief floods over me. I drink and it feels heavenly. It feels good to give up finally. Not so good, but perfectly right. Not so right, but perfectly just. Not so just, but fair. I order another and then another. I stagger down Bourbon Street, a drunken floozy on her way to the streetcar. When I get home, I get in my car. It's dark beyond the windshield, dark everywhere. The road is blurry. I'm dizzy, but I don't kill anybody. I go to C's place, get out of my car, fall down in the dusty road. It's like I'm bowing to him in sorrow, on my knees begging him. There's a black wreath on the door. Anthony must have put it there. My nose is bleeding from the fall. I touch my nose. It reminds me of the old man in the church. See, I scream, you're an angel. Forgive me, I am sorry. Then I hear him yelling back clearly and in his own voice. He couldn't stand the land of the walking dead, so he's finally with his father. And as if he were standing right there over me, though I know it's only my guilty heart, he says, Arabella, get out of here. But it isn't C at all. It's a different voice. Anthony's sitting in the blue plastic chair, his booted foot propped against the porch rail. I said, get out of here right now. What are you doing trying to cause more trouble? It's not enough what you did to see. You got to come over and rub his face in it. His voice is menacing, belligerent. My first thought, if I were a foot or so closer, I'd probably smell his liquor breath. You piece of dirt, you filthy troublemaker. He rants and raves. And what is he doing here anyway? Get out of here, he calls threateningly, or I'm going to kill you. You hear me? Good grief, he's really mad. And if I ever catch you at a meeting again, I'll kick your butt, you stupid moron. I do my best to get on my feet. My head is really swimming. I'm nauseous. I can barely stand. I'm aware my nose is bleeding. I wipe the blood off on my skirt. I feel like I'm going to throw up. I stare him down in the middle of the street. But I don't really see. I can't see anything. It's too dark. But there's something I have to tell him. It's urgent that I tell him. Because if I don't tell him, if I let this stand the way it is, if I walk away believing it, believing him, shamed and cowed and riddled with guilt, I'll jump off the bridge. I know I will. So this is what I tell him. Shut up. Till you've lost someone who's your whole world, you'll never know what it's like being in my shoes. Shut up yourself, you nymphomaniac. And furthermore, I cut him short. 
I didn't do this to see. He did this to himself. I won't let you guilt trip me. I won't let you crush me. I won't let you make me crawl in a hole and die. And furthermore still, you can take a flying leap. You're nothing but an idiot, Anthony. I head toward him, but stop before I get too close. He might have a gun, a knife, a machete. In the ebony night, I feel his eyes. There are burning coals. They scorch me. And so help me, Anthony, if you ever threaten me again, I'll call the cops. I'll come after you myself. I'm a few feet away. I stumbled to my car. I turned to him for the final word. And just for your information, I'll go to any old meeting I want. As the bellowing word moron reverberates through the night, I get in my car and start the engine. I want to step on the accelerator foot to floor and in my murderous rage smash through the porch and make confetti of the chair. But God stands before me, the image of see himself. A gas breaks the silence. I turn and drive away. I want to thank you for listening. It was a great pleasure to read to you. A reading signing will be held at Garden District Books at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, August 7th. The public is invited. Thank you. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a new community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can catch us every Saturday at 1 p.m. as well as on Mondays at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.